Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you don't get your, what I call, anthropology right, uh, that is your assumption about what a person is and what human flourishing is, the law is going to be, at best, arbitrary and capricious. Probably it's going to be unjust and inhumane because the purpose of law is to promote the flourishing of persons, to protect persons. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today with me is Professor Kartnes Need. Professor, can I say Professor and friend Kartnes Need? Yeah, please. I would hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Good morning. I think that most of the people in our audience know very well who you are and uh, how important your work is in uh, public bioethics. However, since we always hope that we're reaching new people with our podcast, I will just say a couple of words. May I? Please. Professor Gartner's need is one of the world's leading experts on public bioethics, which is the governance of science, medicine, biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. He is professor of law at Notre Dame and director of the Denicola Center for Ethics and Culture. His research explores issues relating to neuroethics, enhancement, human embryo research, assisted reproduction, abortion, and end-of-life decision-making. He has written more than 50 journal articles, book chapters, essays. Last October, he published What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, by, published by Harvard University Press. Um, and that's what we want to talk about today. Um, I would just, before we start, I would just to add that um, in addition to his scholarship and teaching, Professor Sneed has provided advice on the legal and public policy dimensions of bioethical questions to officials in all three branches of the U.S. government and in several intergovernmental fora. In particular, he served as general counsel to the President's Council on Bioethics, which was chaired by Dr. Leo Kass, where he was the primary drafter of the 2004 report, Reproduction and Responsibility the regulation of new biotechnologies. Now, I could continue, but I would like to stop here and with the drafting of their report because professors need, I have the impression that there is a very direct line connecting the work you did in that council in 2004 and this last and very, very good book. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. First of all, let me thank you for having me on and say what an admirer I am of your institute and you in particular, those of us at the University of Notre Dame and the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture, which I have the honor of directing, are big fans and admirers of Mariana Orlandi. We're so grateful that she's here in the United States and the role that she's in now. She is a, an alumna of our Vita Institute, which is a, the intellectual formation program on bioethics and other related questions for leaders of the pro-life movement from around the world. And so it's just a great pleasure for me to be with you in this podcast. It's a great podcast. And it's my honor to be part of it. So you're, you're exactly right. In the early 2000s, I was general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics, and we worked on a whole wide variety of issues, including especially the sort of intersection of assisted reproductive technology and genomic interventions. That is, the kinds of gene analysis that's applied to in vitro embryos to decide which kinds of embryonic human beings possess the traits that are preferred by the prospective parents, whether that be for medical purposes or just for sex selection, which is offered in a super vast supermajority of IVF clinics in the United States. And a question that persisted for me 
throughout my work in public bioethics was, why is it that the law and public policy so frequently fail to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us? And that question began in a very sharp way in the context of assisted reproductive technology, as well as abortion and end-of-life decision-making issues that we dealt with on the council. And what I came to and what this book represents to the culmination of my thinking and research on this is that the reason the law in America frequently fails to protect the disabled and children and those at the end of their lives, uh, those in discrete and insular minorities, as well as the unborn, is because the law in this area is rooted fundamentally in a vision of human identity and human flourishing that is a mismatch, that is, does not capture the full lived reality of our experiences, both as individuals and as, as members of communities. And so basically the book argues that if you don't get your, what I call anthropology right, uh, that is your assumption about what a person is and what human flourishing is, the law is going to be at best arbitrary and capricious. Probably it's gonna be unjust and inhumane because the purpose of law is to promote the flourishing of persons, to protect persons. And so you have to have a preliminary view of what a person is in order for the law to do what it's supposed to. If I may ask, in what way these this wrong laws and you know this disregard for human person happens with the same mistake, like mistaken anthropology, if that's like what's the mistaken anthropology behind? Yeah, that's a great question. So Catholic novelist Walker Percy famously said that everyone has an anthropology. Everyone has an operating premise about what a person is and what his or her flourishing is, especially uh, we have an operating premise about who we are and what our flourishing is. And there's a particular flawed, partially true anthropology that emerges in the 20th century. Uh, well, it emerges in the 19th century in the Romantic literary movement, but then becomes commonplace among normal everyday Americans as described by Robert Bella in his famous book, Habits of the Heart. Robert Bella is an American sociologist who interviewed hundreds of Americans to try to figure out what they and who they understood themselves to be and what their purpose in life was. And he found that the average American or those that he interviewed reflected an anthropology of what he termed expressive individualism. That is a vision of the person that takes the fundamental unit of reality to be the individuated atomized individual will, the individual mind or will or bundle of desires and capacity to choose as definitive of what a person is. A person is a will, a person is a mind, and persons are radically individuated. They're not defined by their relationships to others. They're not defined by, their, by how they are or are not embedded in families and communities and traditions. The fundamental unit of reality is the individual, and her flourishing is realized when she interrogates the interior of her own self to find her authentic and original truths and then configures her, her, her destiny and pursues it accordingly. And, and it's a vision that takes seriously our freedom and our particularity. And, the, and those are both things that are true about us as human beings, but it's not the whole story. The whole story it has to include the fact that we live, die, experience ourselves and one another as embodied beings. We, we are bodies in fundamental ways. And as bodies, we're mutually dependent upon each other, we're subject to natural limits, and we're vulnerable because of our corruptible bodies, our finite bodies. And public bioethics in the areas that I talk about, abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, are crises of embodiment in a certain way. They are people, examples of exploitation of vulnerable individuals, or can be, who don't have a voice and are not recognized by the anthropology of expressive individualism as fellow persons because they can't do the things that defines what a person is. 
An unborn child can't interrogate his or her own will to decide a future destiny. Uh, for that matter, a newborn can't do that either. A person with dementia can't do that. A person who is suffering under extraordinary pain because of their illness or injury can't do that. People suffering under the crushing weight of systemic racism can't do that. So it's a, to, to use expressive individualism as the sole lens of the person onto which you, you project the law and policies that are meant to protect persons, leave out of the picture an entire class of human beings who are vulnerable precisely because their embodiment and their conditions of embodiment preclude them from doing the things that expressive individualism values. Could we say that actually expressive individualism leaves all of us out because, as you say, mentioning McIntyre, the forgetfulness of the body and the fact that all human beings exist on a scale of disability implies that sooner or later, that's the condition in which we all are? Exactly right, Mariana. It is true, as McIntyre says, that we all do exist on a scale of disability. We come into the world radically dependent more so than any other mammal just about on our mothers and, and fathers uh, to preserve our lives. And that dependency you know, continues in a graduated way throughout our lives. God willing, it's an arc where we become more independent and then we generally return to a state of dependence. But even the most strong and independently minded person depends on others. Even those who seek to flourish under, through the lens of expressive individualism require another person to hear one's own expression, to, to receive one's expressive statements about our own interior truths. And so the view of expressive individualism is so woefully incomplete as a description of who we are that it's fundamentally inhuman. You're either a beast or a god if you can exist uh, independently of any other person. And that's certainly not true of human beings. All right. And okay, this may be a very short answer for a question that I have in mind. When you say that expressive individualism is at the roots of this poor policies and laws on this very delicate realm of our lives. Do you mean that that's, that expressive individualism is what the judges had in mind when making decisions without knowing it? Or, and policymakers too, like, is it so embedded in the culture? Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the clearest example of expressive individualism in a judicial decision is in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, when Justice Kennedy says that it is fundamental, I'm paraphrasing, but it's fundamental to liberty. It's essential to liberty to be able to define for yourself what life means, what it is to pursue your destiny unencumbered by interference from the state and implicitly with the state you know, requiring you to carry to term pregnancy that, that, is, that in some ways interferes with the realization of your, your wishes. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her dissent in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which is the second partial birth abortion case, the case where the court affirmed in a five to four decision the constitutionality of the federal partial birth abortion ban, she made it very clear in her dissent that she thought abortion was essential for women to realize the freedom, the fundamental freedom of the expressive individual self. She doesn't put it that way, but to pursue her destiny as she sees fit, unencumbered by the natural encumbrances of pregnancy, to express herself sexually in the same way that men do without undergoing that un unequal burden, women have to have recourse to abortion to be full and equal participants in the economic and social life that they construct for themselves. And that is a very pristine example of expressive individualism. They don't call it that, they don't uh, refer to it, but it's perfectly clear that that is the same anthropology animating those arguments that is at the root of expressive individualism. Since you are an expert professor in constitutional law, who would you name who are the judges that did not adhere to this expressive individualism view of 
to, if if there are in the Supreme Yeah, Court. I think what we have with respect to the justices and judges that disagree with the proposition that the 14th Amendment due process clause, which guarantees that no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, a provision, by the way, that was adopted and ratified in 1868, a time in which abortion was illegal almost everywhere in the United States. One month after ratifying the 14th Amendment, the Ohio State Legislature criminalized abortion from conception on the ground that it was, in their words, child murder. So you have to have a very unbounded view of the Constitution to, to, to read into that language a right to abortion. But put that to the side. Those justices who have disagreed with that have not so much done so on the grounds that it's rooted in a false anthropology. They do it on a ground that it's not within the institutional competence or legal authority of the court to adopt an anthropological vision and then build an unenumerated right around it. They say, look, the place to have these conversations is in the legislature and the political branches of the government. And in order for, and that's appropriate under the constitution and it's an irrigation of power and an abuse of power for the court to do what Blackman did, what Kennedy did, because the right to abortion itself emerges out of a kind of expressive individualist framing of what pregnancy and abortion are. In Blackman's account, And in Kennedy's account, it's a clash of strangers. It's two individuated, atomized strangers, a a woman who is recognized as a person and an unborn child who is not recognized as a person, but is recognized as a being that is interfering with the woman's struggle over, or is engaged in a struggle with the woman over scarce resources. That's an account of human pregnancy that is clearly informed by expressive individualism, but has nothing to do with the human reality of pregnancy. And, I, and I've never been pregnant, but I have been a fetus. And I can tell you that that doesn't capture, as everyone has, that the reality of, of the relationship. It's a mother-child relationship, which is a natural relationship, which brings with it certain kinds of obligations and privileges that the law has to be mindful of. And Blackman ignores all that and says, well, this is just a, a clash of interests between a person and a non-person, and we have to protect the person, the woman here, Uh, from this interference and the interference of the state trying to impose on her a definition of what a person is. We have to leave it to her to make that decision for herself, which again is an expressive individualist move, uh, analytically speaking. And the justices who disagree with that say that what you're doing, the entire enterprise is beyond the can of what a court should do. And here's something interesting. In June Medical Services, the case that Chief Justice Roberts joined four justices who would identify as liberal or progressive and striking down Louisiana's laws requiring admitting privileges for abortion providers. In his concurring opinion, he expresses deep skepticism about the capacity of the court to do what Blackman did in Roe. The question of Roe and Casey were not presented to the court, whether it should be overruled or not. And I think his deep skepticism about the the very anthropological, if you will, grounds of Roe v. Wade that gave us the unenumerated right to abortion, his skepticism about that, I take as a very good sign for the future that he's not inclined when he decides at the right moment and when he decides that stare decisis principles have been addressed properly, I don't think he would reaffirm Roe v. Wade if we take him at his word in that decision. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And coming from Europe where the old framework and the wording about abortion is the same, it's never been a right. So the idea of conflict has never been that prevalent. I think, you know, it's totally possible that things happen. I would just as a comment that you might agree, you know, we recently had uh, hearings and a confirmation of Justice Barrett, who was your former colleague at Notre Dame, 
it sounds like reading your book that I actually absolutely adored and I recommend it to everyone, despite it's not for experts. It is also for experts because it has a lot of references, but it's a book that everyone can relate to and understand and just read a lot with other eyes. But as a comment on those hearings and the confirmation, it sounded like the questions asked were like, we want you to adhere to expressive individualism. It sounded to me like you need to show to us that you are going to accept this view of the human being as this absolutely unencumbered self that, you know, just decides for himself and is defined by autonomy. But I just wanted to point out one thing I think, you know, was very beautiful, but also is a question about your book is you, you often use a sentence. Uh, it's just very beautiful. It says, the forgetfulness of the body is a forgetfulness of that network of, and I quote, uncalculated giving and grateful receiving. It's a sentence you use and you repeat, and I just find it very beautiful. But then you say, we also forget about the cultivation of moral imagination. So what is this moral imagination that we need to bring back? Yeah. So I should say that the person who wrote that phrase, networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving was Alistair McIntyre. And I'm heavily influenced by him, as you can imagine. He talks about, and this is really important. I mean, the antidote to expressive individualism is to recognize our embodiment and to work for the construction and sustaining of these, what McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, because as embodied beings, that's what we require for our survival and our flourishing. And first of all, we depend on those networks for our very survival, people who are willing to make our good their good without any hope of getting anything back in return, not because of a contract or a transaction or something like that, because of a relationship, because a parent doesn't take care of a baby because they have a contract to do so. It, and the baby doesn't earn the protection of the parents. It's because they both are participating in a particular kind of network, a human network that binds them to one another. And not only do we depend on these networks for our survival, but we also learn to become the very thing that we're supposed to be by, by learning to make the good of another person our own, which guarantees the future sustainability of the networks, but also teaches us that we are, by virtue of our embodiment, made for love and friendship. And McIntyre talks about, and I extend this in my book and apply to bioethics, the virtues that are necessary for these networks to, to flourish. But you're right. I say that an essential part of what we have to do to shore up these networks, to participate in them, is to cultivate our moral imagination. And that is our capacity to see ourselves in others, to remember our vulnerability when we're confronted with a vulnerable other, and to understand and to remember with gratitude that we that our very lives and flourishing have depended on other people making our goods their good, and to do the same thing for others. And to do the same thing for others, not because we hope to get something back or, or it's a transaction, but because that's what it means to be human. Caring for other people is what it means to be human. And to remember that, you have to work hard on cultivating your moral imagination so that when you see someone and what Mother Teresa described as our, the sometimes disturbing disguises of illness or poverty or what have you, seeing and recognizing the kinship with those other people. It's a kind of recognition that only comes through the cultivation of our moral imagination and reminding ourselves that we are bound to one another. In the words of Mother Teresa, again, we belong to each other. That to me is, is the fundamental point. It's so true. And then when you see the other as yourself, you stop hating immediately because it could be you that is the, the, the object of. But okay, let's let's go more legal. You talked about abortion. I wanted, I was curious, you know, I, in the part that you, the structure of the book, you know, it's just part of public bioethics and a philosophical premise. And then you apply these philosophical premises and show how it works in abortion and reproductive technology. And then in the 
assisted dying, which it's an expression I don't really like, but okay, euthanasia and all the end of life issues. Let's call it that way. You talked about abortion. I wanted to ask you one you know, particular thing that struck me about assisted reproductive technology, which is that artificial reproduction causes a lot of problems to children. And it sounds like this reality is not really at the center of the discussion. No. In fact, I mean, there's a, a long, pretty technical discussion in the book of the risks to children that are, that are associated with different kinds of different forms of assisted reproductive technologies. You know, risks of birth defects, risks of low birth weight, risks of autism in some cases. The Centers for Disease Control have interesting studies that associate a higher incidence of autism and other kinds of maladies with assisted reproduction, although they are careful to point out that they're not sure if the cause of the injuries or maladies in the kids are the techniques themselves or if they have to do with the underlying subfertility of the parents. That, that's a difficult scientific question that they have to untangle. But the fundamental point that I make is that there's nothing in the law at present, and the those who defend the law and who framed, or well, let me just say very briefly, there is no law of assisted reproductive technology in the United States. It's an absence of law that characterizes that landscape. And for, there are a lot of reasons for that, but the result is a kind of open freedom to pursue the goods of the unencumbered self that is reflected by expressive individualism. And I'm not saying, just to be clear, but when people go to get fertility treatment, that they're seeking to assert their unencumbered wills and to live the dream of expressive individualism, quite the opposite. People go to fertility clinics because they feel like their bodies have betrayed them in, in trying to become the thing that they most want to be, which is a parent, right? And that itself is a relationship. There is no parent without a child. And so you would need a legal framework that takes into account that relationship and acknowledges and promotes the flourishing and protection of every person in that equation, but mothers are not protected, gamete donors are not protected, and children who are born with the aid of these techniques, there's no law protecting them either because the, the landscape is just completely open and it, it makes possible, and, and therefore the absence of law is best characterized as rooted in this kind of expressive individualism, which I tie in the book to the work of someone who recently lived in your town, Austin, who passed away not long ago, John Robertson, who's one of the most famous law professors and philosophers of his time. He was a feature of every single advisory body involving bioethics in the latter part of the, of the 20th century. He was the chairman of the ethics department of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the most important lobbying body in America for legislation on these kinds of questions. And that body, by the way, I think is responsible, and they would agree with me, I, I imagine, for the current laissez-faire legal landscape. Um, but his rationale for that landscape was that the right to privacy grounded in abortion includes this notion of pursuing things that are fundamental to defining yourself. And reproduction is one of the most important things we can do towards that end. And that's what the law looks, that looks like the law is grounded in that insight when that's the last thing people need when they go to a fertility doctor. They don't want to assert their unencumbered self, but sometimes we have to be and this will probably sound controversial, we have to be protected not just from the exploitation of others, but for the temptation on our own part to do things that are not in the best interest of our children, right? And that includes certain kinds of fertility techniques that are highly correlated, and this is just very basic stuff, with bad health outcomes for children and women. And I'm not suggesting, and I don't suggest in the book, what a concrete legal solution to this look like. I say, what I say in the Policy. book is yeah. the appropriate anthropology into which to ground a legal framework would be one that recognizes that, that what we're fundamentally doing here is trying to help parents become parents. And what that means is 
we have to consider the end of this process is the conception of a child who is welcomed and loved unconditionally by her parents. And if that's your goal and that's what you're trying to do, the law would look very different than what it looks like right now. Yeah. And so let me switch and go to the assisted suicide then, because I see something very American in your in your take on it, which is uh, sort of the idea that it's fine to decide to stop eating and drinking. Like there is, you know, so, sort of like this freedom that I recognize, you know, like sort of almost an unlimited freedom of saying, well, that's enough for me. And I understand that. Like I have a right to, you know, to decide what you can do or you cannot do to my body. But like, would you agree that there is a difference between care and treatment? And, and so, yeah, you know where I want to yeah, go. Yeah, so, so the, the greatest flaw in our legal framework that relates to end-of-life decision-making and relates to those jurisdictions that have embraced assisted suicide as legal is the conception of the person that those laws are meant to serve and protect. Those laws are designed for the autonomous will to author the end of his or her story, right? In a way that corresponds to their self-invented destiny. You could you read what's called the philosopher's brief in Washington v. Glucksburg and Vacco v. Quill, which were the two Supreme Court companion cases in the late 90s relating to assisted suicide, in which the court said nine to nothing that there's no constitutional right to assisted suicide. But so it was a big loss for those who were trying to argue that there is a constitutional right to assisted suicide. And among those who were making this argument, were the most famous philosophers, living philosophers at the time in the Anglophone world, John Rawls, Nozick, Ronald Dworkin, Judas Jarvis Thompson, and others. And they argued that they pointed right to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They started with that passage that I mentioned a moment ago, which is an anthem for expressive individualism, the idea that our flourishing is defining our universe and our goals for ourselves from the interior of ourself, the depths of our interior, you know, thinking about who we are and what we are capable of. And they said, well, if that's true as a constitutional matter, then it's sure true that the person who's facing the end of his or her life has the freedom to author the end of his or her life story, consistent with the story and narrative that they've been writing throughout their entire existence as autonomous wills. And the court rejected that nine to nothing on the grounds that the Constitution itself had nothing to say about assisted suicide as a historical matter, as a textual matter, and so forth. But the vision of the person as the defiant, independent, you know, rugged individual authoring the end of his life story is not a fair or accurate account of the person lying in the bed who is no longer cognitively capable of making decisions, who's dependent on life-sustaining measures, or who is suffering under the treatable depression, laboring under excruciating pain, maybe, although that turns out not to be the case for most cases in the United States. Most people choose assisted suicide for the, to exercise their autonomy out of fear for losing their self-determination. And so the vision of the people that are supposed to be protected by the law here is not the unencumbered will, but rather a deeply vulnerable, dependent individual. And especially when we're talking about assisted suicide, we're talking about people who are not the rich white person who has cancer and wants to end their own life. We're talking about poor people, disabled people, the elderly, people in dis discrete insular minorities who are at risk anyway in our unjust healthcare system. And you add to that mix assisted suicide, and now they become at risk for fraud, duress, abuse, and mistake. And the ideology of expressive individualism doesn't care about those people, doesn't recognize those people because they are not the free, unencumbered selves that expressive individualism recognizes as persons. 
Yeah, so so true professors need. And, you know, it's the opposite of what you stand for and, you know, your book and all your work, all your writings and what you do with the the Nicole Center for Ethics and Culture. It's just a, a demonstration that there is an opposite view and that there are professors out there, not only, you know, missionaries, but professors of law that actually care about ideas and about how these ideas correspond to human beings with needs and with the disabilities that we talk about. We, we, we are, right, on, we exist on a scale of disabilities. So I want to thank you for that. And the full conference, because of COVID, did not happen in person this year, but I'm happy that we had this conversation. So some of what would have happened at the, then the format of the, conf, the, the full yeah. conference still happened. And we're going to have it in January. We're going to do it online virtually in January. So we'd love for you to participate in that. And, uh, and, and we look forward to that uh, in January. Absolutely. Thank you, Professor. And I want to recommend again to everyone to buy the book, What It Means to Be Human. I said, it's so clear. Um, and it's such, such, such a good book. Um, of course, um, thank you, Professor Sneed, for, for your participation. We look forward to seeing you, you know, online, in person. You would be more than welcome to come to Austin, have some great barbecue with us. Oh, yeah. Franklin's barbecue. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we need some Italian wine. I know we agree. I can bring that. that. I can bring that. Okay. Great. <laughs> of course, as usual, another recommendation for our audience. If you like this episode, share it, share it on social media, share it with your friends, subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.